So for the scriptures today, you're going to be reading, um, or I'm going to be reading Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us by with and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then the second scripture reading for today is 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 41 through 46. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is a sound of the of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and winds, and there was great rain. And Ahab rode when, and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So now I'm just going to close us out in prayer, and then Jasmine is going to come up and give the message. Dear God, thank you so much for joining us all here today, whether that is online or in person. Just thank you for giving us an opportunity to worship you and hear your truth. I pray that you open our hearts and open our hands to whatever Jasmine has to speak to us today. And I just pray over Jasmine that you just give her a clear mind and help her clearly speak what you want us to hear today. I lift this all up to you, Jesus, and pray all of this in your name. Amen. Good morning. I'll take you in for a moment. Good morning. I see more new faces today, which means I should be on my best behavior, but you know I'm about to act up. You know I am, because if all goes according to plan, today is my fourth and final sermon for the summer. I love sharing the Word of God. It is my favorite thing to do. I cannot wait to come back, but I have more gray hair after these four weeks than I have 
ever had before, and black is not supposed to crack, so Logan got to come on back. You gotta come back, Logan. Okay, here we go. Once again, lots to say, not a lot of time. We're gonna go quickly. All right, last week we talked about karma. And by the way, those of you that reached out, thank you so much. I am so glad that message was as relevant for so many of you as it was for me, so thank you for that. And more importantly than karma, we talked about mercy and grace because we not only want to grow vertically in our relationship with God, we also want to grow horizontally. We want to grow with the people that are next to us. And, um, you know, at, in all of this, we're talking about growth. But why is growth important? And so um, we know we're supposed to grow, we know growth is good, we know that we were meant to grow, but more importantly than that, at the end of what you just heard read in Ephesians 2, verse 10, that is why we need to grow and we have to grow, because as it says, God has good works prepared for you to do. Um, God has good works prepared for you to do. That feeling that you have that you wanna do something good with your life, you wanna be used in a special way, that feeling comes from God. You don't ever have to be ashamed of that feeling. He is ready for you to step into the fullness of who you're supposed to be in order to do these good works that he has prepared for you to do. And so I thought Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 would be a good place to start because it starts with mercy and grace and then it gets to those good works. Um, if I'm telling you that God has good works prepared for you to do, then of course you know we're going to talk about good works today, and we will get there, I promise. But um, I want to be honest with you and tell you that this week I had a lot of trouble preparing the message, and it wasn't because I didn't have ideas. I had a lot of things that I thought would be very good to say, and God did not seem to like any of my ideas and kept saying no, 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 no. And so um, I went on a walk in the park and I was walking around by myself and um, I was picturing a person planting and watering and waiting for something to grow because we've been talking about that. And I kept feeling blocked from saying it. And so finally I said, okay God, if not that, then what? And that phrase is very funny to me because um, I knew this very famous acting teacher who would watch his students rehearse a scene. And then at the very end, when they were done, they would like look over to him for approval, you know, like, did I do a good job? And if he didn't like what you did, he would walk over and walk up to his students and say, if not that, then what? And so now that's a phrase that I've adopted when people ask me, like, how did I do? Or do you like my outfit? I'll say, if not that, then what? What other choices can we offer today? And so that that's, was really my posture with the Lord. Okay, Lord, if not that, if you don't like my ideas, then what? And I felt him drop this into my spirit. He said, you need to tell them to look up. You need to tell them to look up. You're picturing a person who's planted and watered. They're looking down at the ground, and I'm calling you to look up. Okay, so that's where we're going today. So going back to planting and sowing, right, we started with the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Quick reminder, that's about a farmer who goes out and scatters seed in four different uh, areas, four different types of ground, but only one out of the four bears any fruit. 
Only one out of the four yields the harvest that it was intended to bring forth all along. And we're going to get very deep and very spiritual today, so just get ready. Because I know there are people who are listening to this message, and you are the fourth type of soil. You have done the planting, you have done the watering, you are looking at the ground, you are waiting to see what is God going to bring out of this. Alicia, I'm talking to you right now. You're waiting to see what is God going to bring out of this, and he's calling you to look up. You don't have to check the ground to see what's going to grow. Now, planting and watering is a very easy concept to overlook. It feels elementary. But did you know, I'm just going to put this over here. Did you know, did you realize, do you realize? Okay, little flaming lips just for you. Um, Do you realize that this parable, the parable of the sower, is the most important parable? And normally I wouldn't go out on a limb and say something like that. But if you read through that uh, parable again, in chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus says, this is verbatim, If you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the other parables? Those are his words. He is very clearly saying, if you cannot understand that my words are not just words, these are words that you need to plant, implant in your life, and then bring a harvest from it, how are you going to grasp or benefit from anything else that I'm saying? So I don't just keep going back to this parable because I like it. It's really important that you get this and you understand how to bring fruit out of your life. So cherish this parable. Cherish the law of the harvest and keep planting and watering, but then look up. In the natural world, if you were planting and farming, it would make complete sense for you to be looking down at the ground. And I remember in school, we used to do these science experiments with beans in a cup. The teacher would give you the beans, a little bit of dirt, a cup, then you would plant it in the cup, you would go put it in the windowsill, and then she would come back, she would give you a piece of paper, and you were supposed to come in for the next several days and write down what you, you know, observed. And on TV, kids were always doing very cool science experiments. They had lava coming out of fake volcanoes, and they were dissecting pigs. But at my school in Alabama, all we ever did was work with beans in a cup. And we had plenty of pigs, so the Department of Education had no excuse. But that was about the best we ever did, was beans in a cup. So I know what I'm talking about. And if you were growing beans in a cup or something in the earth, like I said, makes sense for you to be looking down. But you have to realize, when you're waiting for something to grow in the kingdom of God, you're waiting for something to come out, looking up is key. Now, I told you that phrase dropped in my spirit. That was not my idea. So I had to go and look that up. So uh, they looked up. He looked up. That phrase alone appears more than 600 times in the Bible. Jesus uh, looked up before he gave thanks for the bread and for the fish and then multiplied it. Daniel looked up and saw angels. John looked up in the book of Revelation and then described what he saw. 
If you're spending your time looking down, waiting for something to grow, looking at what hasn't grown, what hasn't yet worked out, what happens is you can become disappointed. And if you stay disappointed long enough, you risk sliding into discouragement. Now, I talked about the difference between disappointment and discouragement in this church before, but for those that are new, or you're online and you're new, or you are just feeling a little discouraged this morning, I, I wanna quickly touch on that again. Okay, here we go. And credit to Dr. Charles Stanley, who's given me so much of this foundation. To be disappointed is to be human. It is okay to be disappointed. All of us deal with disappointment on a weekly, if not daily, basis because to be disappointed simply means that something that you were expecting did not work out. And it is okay to be disappointed. And I want to say to you this morning that this space, this space in particular, is a place where you can come in and own your disappointments. Just because we see one another in the bathroom like we just did, and I say, hey, good morning, how are you? You don't have to necessarily say good if that's not how you feel. You can own your disappointments. God is big enough to hold your disappointments. We as a church will be big enough to hold your disappointments. So that is okay. We all deal with that. On the other hand, discouragement is very dangerous because discouragement is a belief that what has happened before will happen again. What's happened before is just gonna happen again, so what is the point of me even trying when it's just gonna keep happening and it's gonna happen again? That's a dangerous place to be. That's a dream killer. I don't know who I'm talking to right now, but I feel that's very important. That is a dream killer. We will not allow you to stay, out, stay there today. If that's you and you need prayer after service, find Alicia in the back and Jason. Let them pray over you. Okay. Discouragement, quick example. If you take a train at seven o'clock in the morning and the train shows up 30 minutes late, you'll be disappointed, surely. But if you keep showing up for a seven o'clock train and it keeps showing up 30 minutes late over and over and over again, eventually you will become discouraged enough that you will stop taking that train. If you're waiting for God to do something and you keep looking down at the ground and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you don't see anything growing, even though we know he's always working. When you're sleeping, he's working. He never takes time off. He never takes his eye off of you. You're too precious and too special to him. But if you think nothing is happening, you are risking becoming discouraged. And that's because we don't tend to limit our gaze to our own field. What happens is when we're looking down at us, we start to look around at what other people are doing, at what other people have growing on, at how much money other people make, at how many promotions other people received, at what other people's parents do for them. 
And when we start to do that and we are starting to compare ourselves and we start to compare, well, what has God done for this person versus what God has done for me? Comparison is designed to steal your joy. It's designed to make you think that he's not working for you when he is. So if you, TJ, I'm talking to you in the back. If you have done the work, you've done the planting, you've done the watering, you know you've been faithful, you know you've given your all, you know you've done a good job, and you're still feeling discouraged, I want to challenge you today. Where are you looking? Are you looking down or are you looking up? We don't want to be like the horse. Y'all better let this old country girl from Alabama learn you something today. Horses, this is true, this is science. Horses, and I know we have some, cannot see from eye level to the ground six feet in front of them. I don't know if you knew that. They can see far off, you know, when you're riding one, he can see where he's going. He cannot see six feet in front of him from eye level down to the ground. They actually can't see what they're eating. That's why you see them feeling around. They're using their whiskers to find the bucket or to find the next patch of grass. They actually can't see this, but they can see really well in the peripheral. They can see so well on the sides, they can almost see to the back of their own head. That's why we have to put horse blinders on them. Because if you put them in traffic or you put them in a race, they can see so well here and not here that they get distracted. So again, where is your gaze? When you are waiting on God for something to grow, you are not supposed to be looking at the side at what other people are doing. You are not supposed to be looking back. What's done is done. And you are not supposed to be looking down at the ground at what you regret. You have to look up. You have to look up. Because, yes, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, for you, for you, go ahead, put your, put your hand on yourself. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These, there are good works. There are good works prepared for you beforehand. It was already done. You don't have to do anything. These things have already been prepared. It's like if I invite you to come over to dinner at my house and you say, okay, well, can I bring anything? I'm likely to say, no, you don't have to bring anything at all. It's already prepared. I got it ready for you. All you have to do is come in and sit down and have a seat at the table. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. Um, but usually, it's, I, I mean, in you, sometimes for me, if for the Lord, always, already has been prepared. And so these good works, I want you to get this now. Okay, what are good works? Good works are anything that reflect the heart and the character and the power and the will of God. So when you're unsure, is this a good work? Run through that checklist. The heart 
the character, the power, and the will of God. If it reflects that, if it can manifest that, you're in a good work. Okay, let's do an example. Jesus healing the sick. Perfect example of a good work. Reflects all four of those things. Reflects his character. His character. He is a healer. That's who he is. And he's committed to us. That's his character right there. Okay, reflects his heart. Obviously, his love for us. His great, tremendous love for us. No matter where we come from, background, who we are. Just his love and his compassion that he can never just pass us by and leave us as we are. His power. Don't make me take off my shoes. His power. You get that one. This miracle working. I can bring the dead back to life. I can make the blind see. I can have people get up and walk. His power that's on the inside of him. And then his will. It is his will to see us restored and whole and back with him, ultimately. So in totality, a good work. Now, maybe you're saying, okay, well, obviously, you know, that's, that's Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus said, the good works that I do, you're going to do the same type of work. Good works prepared for you to do. To make this even, you know, more specific, and I hope I'm not embarrassing them. Actually, I think they're on their honeymoon, so they're probably not watching. But there's a guy in my community group. His name is Adam. And... Um, he talked about how his family has this small business out in the Midwest. Nothing fancy about it. Um, I think it's a construction business. And he talked about, you know, how his family, of course, they want to make money. Of course, they want to be successful. But he said, you know, we have this mantra or motto in our family where we just, we want to be the type of business where we're good to our employees. We want every person to feel good about what they do and where they work and um, you know, to have benefits and to be taken care of and to feel like they can take care of their family. That's really important to us that people have a healthy, godly sense of pride about where they work. They, they feel good about it. And it seems so small, right? This one little family in the Midwest doing that for this construction group. But that's a major good work. Right there, every single day, they are demonstrating the character and the heart and the power and the will of God just through their, their, you know, their little business. And God has good works planned for everyone to do. And that ought to get everybody excited. It ought to be a relief to you because it means you don't have to be stressed. You don't have to fret. You don't have to compete with anybody else at work because he has good works planned for you to do. And it means that when you see other people winning, it does not mean you're losing. It means they are stepping into their good works and your good works have already been prepared. Your good works are just as protected and just as ripe and just as ready to go. And um, I see this, you know, I, I struggle with it sometimes in my own life, have to remind myself. Um, there's a cousin of mine that I have to remind about this because um, a couple of years ago, she created this really brilliant beauty product. And I can't tell you what it is because I'm really hoping that we're going to go on Shark Tank and then I'm going to 
you know, say things. Equity, you know. <laughs> it's, did you believe me? Equity. Thank you. Good. Um, yeah, but so, so, um, so she created this product. It's brilliant. It's great. I would invest in it if I had money. Um, and then, like, last year I saw uh, that a very similar product had been created. And I felt this sense of panic at first. And it was a really good reminder that, one, I just need to be praying for her more so she can have the wisdom to know how to move forward. But it was also a reminder that that's what happens to us, you know. We see something like that and we get a little shaken up. And that's when you have to reground yourself and go back to the Lord and seek him because he has good works planned for you to do. That doesn't affect your good works. Okay. Um, like I said, don't stress. Don't fret. Remember, God always takes care of his faithful servants. You're too valuable. Why would he not take care of you? When you get into a moment like that where you're either looking to the side or you know, you're looking down, you do as it says in Psalm 27. You remain confident in this, that you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, and then you wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Now with the time I have left, I want to quickly look at two people in the Bible who looked up. These are people that battled a lot of discouragement. They waited for a long time to see the promises of God come, come forth, but they still managed to look up. And the first one is Abraham. So you know Abraham. In the beginning, he didn't know the Lord. God revealed himself to Abraham and said, I want you to journey with me and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you famous and I'm going to bless generations and generations and generations to come through you. You are that generation. You are a part of that. And that's exactly what happened. Throughout the next several decades, Abraham saw God's favor on his family. He saw the blessing, including that he finally had a child born to him and to his wife, Sarah, at an impossibly old age. But then when you get further into his story, in chapter 22, it says that God tested Abraham's faith. And here's what that test looked like. Abraham was instructed to go to a high place and to offer a sacrifice. And normally, you would offer a lamb or some other type of animal. But this time, God told Abraham, I want you to offer your son, Isaac. I'm sure he was filled with dread. I'm sure his mind was spinning. I'm sure he felt like throwing up as he started to ascend up a mountain with his son and two servants who he eventually left behind and just be, finished the climb with, with his young son, Isaac. I'm sure he was sick to his stomach, but also asking himself, how is God going to redeem this? How is God going to redeem this? And I'm sure he was terrified and he had to be heartbroken when his young son said, Daddy, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And he had to tell him without really knowing, just trusting, God will provide. So here he is, ties up his young son, carries forward with it, 
has him in place, picks up a knife to kill him, and just as he raises it, the angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham, stop. That is a test. That's a test that I am uncomfortable with. My mind has a hard time with that one. My mind does. But in my spirit, I feel like the Holy Spirit gives me peace to be able to give God the benefit of the doubt. And that's a phrase that we use a lot. The benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And I want to encourage you to give God the benefit of the doubt. When you say the benefit of the doubt, what you're saying, that's defined as the person or the statement that you just regarded, in this case, the person. The person that you regarded must be considered correct if the contrary has not been proven. And I want you to start giving God the benefit of the doubt because so far no one has proven anything about his character other than he is good. No one has proven to me that God puts us through pointless tests. No one has proven to me that God is not for us. No one has proven to me that God would not do anything to have a relationship with us. And let me break this down for you. When God wanted to have a relationship with Abraham, he didn't actually make him go through sacrificing his son. He didn't actually require that his son die. But when God wanted to have a relationship with you, he followed through on it. He watched his son die. But in Abraham's case, God stepped in and when Abraham looked up, sweat running down his brow, tears running down his face, you know he had to be crying, so relieved, can't believe the angel of the Lord just told him to stop. When he looked up, he saw a ram in the bush. Let me tell you something, if you never get anything else from me, there is always, always, always a ram in the bush. God always has exactly what you need, when you need it, where you need it. He is always going to take care of you when he knows you are waiting on him to come through. I don't have any tattoos, but if I get some tattoos, I'm going to probably get, there's always a ram in the bush, just like this, so that whichever way I cross my legs, I can always just see a big reminder. It's always a ram in the bush, always a ram in the bush. You have to know that in your spirit. Tattoo that on yourself today. Do you understand the thicket had to grow? The ram had to run at just the right time. The wind had to blow for everything to be in the right place. And when he looked up, exactly what he needed, the sacrifice was right there. There's always a ram in the bush, but you have to look up. The other person I want to look at <laughs> is Elijah. Elijah, big prophet, big deal, big name. His story only covers three chapters in the Bible, believe it or not. Now, in Elijah's day, this is about 100 years after King David, in Elijah's day, Israel was not one country. Um, we need to have Marcy come and teach on this. She knows this very well. But I'll tell you the little bit that I know. Israel at that point had been divided into two different nations. So you had Israel in the north and you had Judah in the south. 
And Israel, now just in the north, was being run by a very wicked king named Ahab. He came from a line of wicked kings, but even worse than Ahab was Jezebel, his wife. And together, they ruined and chipped away and eradicated this rich history that Israel had with the Lord God. And they did it by like intermixing and intermingling uh, with this demonic deity, with these false gods. They brought it all in, got rid of the Lord God and brought in these false idols. And if you read in the book of Deuteronomy, the punishment from the Lord for idolatry for doing what they were doing with these big false idols, very clear punishment. The punishment was a drought. So that's where this comes from. So um, one day, God tells Elijah to go to Ahab, this wicked king, and tell him there's not going to be any more rain as a result of this idolatry. And then God sends Elijah away. He hides him. He protects him for three years. And then one day God tells Elijah, okay, now I want you to go tell Ahab that it is going to rain. So let's just do that again. First, it's not going to rain. Three years of waiting, three years of discouragement, three years of I don't know what's happening. And now he tells him, go back because it's going to rain. So Elijah goes back to do that. And Ahab is furious. And Elijah's like, it's not my fault, it's your fault, because you're doing all this idolatry. But you know what? I tell you what, let's settle this once and for all. Let's have a competition. Who, Israel, are you going to keep worshiping? Are you going to worship the true God? Are you going to worship these stupid, false idols that can't do anything for you? So he says, let's have a competition. So they go up to a a mountain, go up to a high place, and... um, Elijah says the competition is going to be simple. Both sides are going to call on the Lord God. Whoever's uh, God sets this sacrificial offering on fire, that's obviously the winner, and that's the true God. And that's exactly what happens. They have the competition, and Elijah and the true Lord God blows them out of the water, literally. Literally. Lots of wet wood and everything still burns up. So Elijah wins in a very obvious way. And like any true winner, he starts trash talking after he wins because he can, okay? And so he goes up to Ahab and he's like, I just won that competition. And by the way, I hear the sound of abundant rain. And everybody's like, what? And he's like, I said... I said what I said. I said, I hear the sound of abundant rain. So you better get in your chariot and you better get your horses and you better get home because it's about to rain. And so Ahab leaves. I don't know that he necessarily believes him, but he leaves and he starts on his way home. And Elijah does something very interesting here. He goes to the same mountain where they just had the competition. And he gets down in a position of labor to pray. Lots of ways to give birth, many ways to labor. He gets down on the ground to labor and to pray. And he's so confident that it is going to rain, which by the way, he didn't hear that with his physical ears. He heard that in his spirit. 
If everybody else had heard what he heard, everybody else would have acted accordingly. Elijah's the only one that heard it. He hears it in his spirit. He's so confident that it's going to rain that he sends his servant to go and do what? To look up and to look out and to tell him what he sees. And so his servant does that. He's, you know, dutiful. He goes, he looks up, he looks out, he doesn't see anything. He comes back, he reports it to Elijah. I didn't see anything. Elijah says, that's okay. Um, Go check again. Servant goes back again. He checks again. He's looking up, he's looking out, goes back to Elijah, says it again. I I didn't see anything. Elijah's not phased. He knows what he heard. He knows what he heard. Go look again. And he does that seven times. That's confidence. Go do it again. Seven times he does this. And on the seventh time, the servant comes back and he says, I see a cloud as big as a man's hand. I see a cloud as big as a man's hand. And upon hearing that, the Spirit of God hits Elijah so hard that he gets up, girds up his loins, gathers up his fabric, and gets to running so quickly that he outruns Ahab and everybody else that had left hours and hours before him. That's how hard the Spirit of God was on him. Do you understand that? Let's break that down. I hear abundant rain, but all I see in the sky is a cloud the size of a man's hand. Now, I happen to have hands the size of a man. So this is a very accurate reenactment right here. Look up in the sky right now. The sky is filled with clouds. We don't know if it's necessarily going to rain again today. I see clouds every day and it doesn't rain. But this time, all he saw was a cloud this size. And the Spirit of God hit him so hard because he knew what he heard. Why would that matter for you? Why does that matter for you? Because when you are waiting for God, small signs... Small signs like a cloud the size of a man's hand are indications that God is about to do a greater work in your life. He, you know what he told you. You know what he promised you. You know what he's spoken to you about this church. You know what he's spoken to you about your family. You know what you want to see him do in your business. You're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And when you see a cloud the size of a man's hand, I don't care how small it is, you be faithful to small beginnings. And you do like Elijah did. And you get up and run because there is abundant rain coming. And it doesn't matter if other people can't see it or hear it. That was for you. That's your sign. And so this week, this week, don't you let anybody take your encouragement from you. This week, if no other week, I want you to spend time thinking about how much you have grown. I want you to think about the good works that he has already planned for you to do. And nothing is going to change that. Nothing. And I want you to be confident in knowing that what God has for you is for you. So you keep planting, you keep watering, You keep yourself encouraged. And when all else fails, 
you look up. Let's pray. Hmm. Lord, I'm so content with silence in this moment. Holy Spirit, move. Holy Spirit, move. Holy Spirit, move. Holy Spirit, be patient with us. Holy Spirit, help us to look up. Holy Spirit, move. Thank you, Jesus. You are good. You are good. Show us the good works that you have planned for us to do, Lord. Show us the good works in God. As we stand looking out, Lord, come and stand behind us. Put your hands on our shoulders and let us know that you were there with us, looking out, watching on the horizon with us. Remind us that you always have provision in the form of a ram in the bush for us, and that there is always hope that sometimes appears in a cloud the size of a man's hand. We love you, Lord. Amen.